You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. I'm your host as usual, Ankit Panda, based in New York City, and I'm joined by Prashant Parmeswaran today, my colleague at The Diplomat. How's it going, Prashant? Good, how are you doing? Doing well. Uh, so first of all, to uh, both Prashant, I guess, and our listeners, a very happy new year. Welcome to 2017, which I think promises to be another intriguing year in the Asia Pacific as plenty of changes are afoot. So this episode will continue our ongoing series on the legacy that will be left behind in the Asia Pacific by the outgoing U.S. administration of President Barack Obama, which has just wrapped up eight years in office and has just two weeks left as we record this episode. So in the previous uh, segment, we talked a bit about specific flashpoints in the Asia Pacific and how the United States was involved there. Specifically, we devoted a lot of time to the North Korean nuclear threat and the South China Sea. This time, we're going to pull back a bit and take more of a 30,000-foot view of the broader region and broadly evaluate the pivot to Asia. And I think there's an important reason for doing this. I mean, part of it is the fact that we have an administration leaving, so it's worth taking stock of what was accomplished. But I think there's more of a practical purpose here, too, is that with the incoming administration of Donald Trump, we're potentially poised for a significant change in how U.S. foreign policy and how the United States broadly thinks strategically about the Asia-Pacific region and more broadly the world. So in taking stock of the legacy of what the Obama administration will leave behind, I think, is a useful way to know where things stood as, uh, you know, we entered um, or as we approached January 20th when uh, Donald Trump will be inaugurated. So um, because there is a lot to cover on this episode, I'll just broadly outline the structure. Um, And if you're more interested in a certain part of the discussion, feel free to skip ahead. So Prashant and I will start by talking about how the Obama administration managed alliances in the Asia-Pacific, the formal alliances where the U.S. has treaty commitments for military defense. Then we'll move on to talk a bit about strategic partners and various uh, bilateral convergences that have been going on around the region. Then we'll briefly detour, talk a bit about multilateralism and normative issues like human rights. And finally, we'll end with a longer discussion talking about the more adversarial aspects of U.S. engagement with the Asia-Pacific. And here, the big two countries are obviously North Korea and China. We'll probably focus a bit more on the latter because we did discuss North Korea quite a bit on the previous episodes. If you're more interested in North Korea, I'd recommend checking that out as well. Um, Anyways, Prashant, I think with that, let's uh, jump right into it without a moment to spare. So I thought we'd uh, kick off with the discussion of the the alliances in the Asia-Pacific. And I think actually a good place to start here, and this is something you know very well as our Southeast Asia editor, is the one alliance that I think really went topsy-turvy in the final six months of the Obama administration, which is the U.S. alliance with the Philippines. Do you want to talk a bit about that and just broadly maybe reflect on the past eight years and how we got to the place we are today? Yeah, I think... uh... The, the U.S.-Philippine alliance uh, was, was seen within the context of the administration as, as one of the major success stories. Usually when one talks about the U.S. alliance with the Philippines, it's associated with uh, the United States doing most of the work and the Philippines not being able to get its act together in terms of its own basic uh, defense modernization, let alone uh, helping the United States address broader regional and global challenges. But uh, as you pointed out, during the uh, Obama administration and under uh, President Aquino uh, in the Philippines, um, that relationship, uh, you know, saw a, a huge growth. Um, and I guess the, the the major capstone there was the inking of the new Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement uh, with the Philippines, which took the alliance 
to a level that we really hadn't seen since the end of the Cold War um, in terms of a U.S. presence there. And, and the United States was beginning to talk about the U.S.-Philippine alliance as not only a bilateral alliance, but also an increasing, uh, increasingly important place and a conduit where other allies like Japan and Australia could work with the United States there too. Um, but obviously with the rise of Rodrigo Duterte um, and his sort of anti-American bent, um, a lot of that has been thrown into question. I mean, I, I, I've, I've written uh, quite a lot about this in terms of the granular details, but just, you know, broadly speaking, um, while the U.S.-Philippine alliance is, is still going on, and I'll expect cooperation to continue, um, towards the end of the Obama administration, the optics don't look good because you have a, a president in the Philippines who has said that he actually wants to downplay and, in fact, cut some of the exercises that have been ongoing. So that has been a real uh, sort of blow to U.S. policy. With respect to Thailand, I mean, very quickly, I think it falls into this category as similar to the Philippines, where in spite of the Obama administration's efforts to in invest in alliances and partnerships in the region, domestic political challenges have really gotten in the way. You know, you've seen this with the coup in Thailand, with Duterte's rise on the Philippines, and I'm sure we'll talk more um, about South Korea as well and some of the changes there. Yeah, um, I think, you know, one of the issues that you alluded to in your discussion of the Philippines is the U.S. attempt to, you know, draw Japan and Australia in. And this actually, you know, goes back to, I think, one of the themes of how the Obama administration thought more broadly about alliances in the region, which was, you know, obviously, as uh, Ash Carter has put it more recently in terms of networking um, and less about the old fashioned, you know, Cold War era hub and spoke schema. I mean, I think you also see that with uh, Japan and South Korea, uh, which are obviously the two more developed alliances, uh, South Korea being, you know, one of the largest U.S. military bastions abroad and Japan being one of the most uh, developed alliances along a range of issues. Um, one of the issues with Japan I thought was interesting, and this again, you know, goes back to the issue of domestic politics, which matters deeply in alliances. I mean, I think personally, especially in Asia, um, was that, you know, you had Shinzo Abe who uh, managed to stick around for pretty much the entirety of Obama's second term. He came back to the scene um, in December 2012 in a snap election and has managed to, you know, have one of the longest terms in Japanese politics since uh, Junichiro Koizumi in the early 2000s. And that's been a, an important factor uh, since, you know, Japan had sort of a revolving door of prime ministers, both uh, DPJ and LDP coming in and out for a while. And that really complicated things for the alliance. And Abe in particular is interesting because he's, uh, you know, he comes from a new generation of Japanese politicians who are more energetic about revising Japan's role within the alliance. And to that end, you know, the big testament here is the revision of the U.S.-Japan defense guidelines and Japan's own reinterpretation of Article 9 of its constitution to allow for collective self-defense. Um, and we've seen Japan, you know, um, also encouraged by the United States to take a more active role in defense commerce. Japan lifted its self-imposed embargo on arms exports. Um, unfortunately, it lost a submarine deal with Australia, but it's uh, looking to conclude its first military deal with India, which is, again, uh, you know, something we'll talk about when we get to partners, but another uh, trilateral dynamic um, with a lot of networking that the United States under Obama has really encouraged. South Korea, I think, is another uh, great example of some of these issues. Um, obviously, the big threat there is the North Korean threat that the alliance is pretty much designed to keep at bay. And in the final um, years of the Obama administration, I think we saw a more energetic push to help South Korea effectively interdict, um, you know, North Korean threats. So, you know, you had the big push for the deployment of the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense System, which was finalized this summer. 
Um, and, um, you know, I guess I should probably go back since we're talking about the full eight years here. I mean, you had 2010, which was an unusually provocative year in uh, inter-Korean relations with the shelling of Yongpyong Island and the sinking of the Chonan, um, which I think, again, you know, led to um, a certain recognition that the North Korean threat was really changing and the alliance would have to change. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, some of these issues we've talked about before on the podcast, uh, obviously, there's also the issue of uh, transferring operational control from the United States to South Korea. Um, but, you know, I mean, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the final curveball, I guess, as the Obama administration leave, which is um, obviously the impeachment of Park Geun-hye, which is, um, you know, which has led to her effectively uh, leaving office um, pending constitutional review and could lead to months of uncertainty in how the alliance is seen right now. Um, but broadly, you know, one final thing I'll say about the South Korea-Japan dynamics here, Prashant, and you can maybe elaborate on this as we move on to talk about the partnerships is that, you know, um, the Obama administration, I think, broke with a little bit of what previous administrations had really avoided doing, which was trying to get South Korea and Japan to play nicely together. Obviously, uh, even though that the two countries are U.S. allies, they have sharp differences between themselves that go back to long simmering historical issues. Um, And here, you know, one of the major issues is obviously the comfort women issue, which South Korea really holds near and dear and has really prevented uh, Korea seeing Japan as a viable partner. But in the final years of the Obama administration, we saw increased trilateralism. Actually, the first time I believe Park Geun-hye met Shinzo Abe and they were in the same room together was at the 2014 Nuclear Security Summit, which uh, Obama presided over. So that was interesting. It was an example of the U.S. really uh, helping its two allies get together. And, you know, we've seen that expand more in the previous um, in recent years with uh, um you know, ballistic missile defense cooperation. Um, I believe the three countries carried out their first um, Aegis destroyer drill together on the sidelines of RIMPAC this year, uh, which was interesting to see as well. So um, definitely, you know, to the Obama administration's credit, I think um, increasing networking between its allies is a huge topic here. And I will add before we move on to the partnerships is that we did a more detailed podcast on this when we talked a bit about Ash Carter's legacy and what, uh, you know, the Defense Department is going to look like with uh, Jim Mattis coming on board. So I'd recommend, uh, you know, going back and listening to that episode if you want to uh, hear Prashant and I talk about some of these issues in a little bit more detail. Um, but Prashant, let's move a bit on to talk about the uh, strategic partnerships that have proliferated and grown in the Asia Pacific under the Obama administration's pivot. And I think, you know, maybe a good place to start here, um, and this is another one that you know well, is a Vietnam. I mean, obviously, we saw the lifting of the embargo in the final years, but what do you have to say about the U.S.-Vietnam relationship more broadly going back over the past eight years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, this is an administration that um, has placed value and thought about expanding U.S. engagement to Asia in, in a big picture strategic sense. So as you correctly mentioned, um, the U.S. Uh, alliances in the Asia-Pacific have traditionally been viewed as sort of a hub-and-spoke system. Um, but the Obama administration, Ash Carter, and, 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 and other folks have been talking about this idea of, of more of a networking uh, concept. It's it's not new entirely. The Bush administration talked about it as well, but it really has been laid out and fleshed out as the sort of principled and inclusive security network. Um, and I think that's where the strategic and comprehensive partnerships uh, come in. You had the Asia team under Kurt Campbell um, that came in initially, uh, viewing these partnerships as ways to institutionalize relationships that the United States had with emerging powers. A lot of these initial relationships already existed. But uh, I think these administration officials viewed uh, the institutionalization of these partnerships as a way to really uh, build and embed cooperation. And Vietnam, as you correctly pointed out, is is 
is a shining example of that, um, where you had uh, before the administration uh, left office, the the lifting of the uh, arms embargo, which was uh, a, a major step uh, concerning where these two countries were um, on opposite sides of the Vietnam War um, just a few decades ago. Um, but there are other examples as well. Um, uh, cooperation with Malaysia and Indonesia are also two other notable examples, especially you know Indonesia being. Uh, a member of the G20 and one of the uh, rising, capable, emerging uh, countries in the Asia Pacific. Um, you know, I, I think in general, what the Obama administration has been doing, and you know, another good example of this in the South Asian context is India, right? Um, and the main takeaway here is that uh, the Obama administration has recognized the fact that there are a group of countries who are emerging that are not traditional allies. The U.S. has treaty commitments to. But they're important enough and critical to achieving U.S. and economic and security interests um, that they deserve more high-level attention from the United States. Uh, and the Obama administration has been dedicated to trying to make sure that they seize these opportunities there. I should mention, though, that um, while we're talking sort of at a very sort of 30,000 feet level about strategy, um, this is also partly a response uh, to what China has been doing in the region. Right. Um, the Obama administration has talked broadly about how, um, for instance, in the South China Sea, China has been alienating a number of Southeast Asian countries as well as some South Asian states as well. And these countries have then provided an opportunity for the United States to engage in some of these comprehensive and strategic partnerships. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the China angle. I was actually thinking the other day that, in a sense, uh, the principal security network is, in a sense, a fiscally asymmetrical response to, you know, China's One Belt, One Road initiative in some ways. You know, China's One Belt, One Road is obviously underwritten with cold, hard cash, loans, grants, you know, support for projects that are physically increasing connectivity. The principal security network, though, is, you know, far more diplomatic. I mean, obviously, there is money behind this. You have things like the Maritime Security Initiative, a host of defense deals, um, the U.S. increasing its defense presence in the region, which do have real fiscal costs for the U.S. government. Um, but in a sense, you know, it is the United States figuring out a fairly low-cost way to enlist countries that aren't part of the formal alliance system to, t to have a stake in the liberal international order and uphold it. And a lot of that comes back to, you know, normative similarity. And here, I think India is a particularly good example of that. Uh, you know, just this year, India won itself a bespoke status as a major defense partner, which was neither, um, you know, ally nor just a strategic partner. Uh, it was something like a major non-NATO ally without actually calling it that, since Indians are a little bit allergic to that term. Um, but again, you know, in the Indian context, I think it's interesting to reflect on the fact that uh, it, it again comes back to domestic politics in some ways. I mean, after, uh, you know, the previous uh, UPA government, which was in power for 10 years, you had... Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, who was a, um, you know, economically very liberal, outward looking, pro-U.S., um, but his party, the Congress and, uh, you know, the Indian left more broadly are very skeptical about the U.S. role in the world, uh, not only in the Asia Pacific. So, you know, after he expended quite a bit of diplomatic capital in pushing for the nuclear deal, which was the landmark in that relationship in the in the 2000s, um, you know, it took a while before things could get to the point where, uh, you know, we really saw momentum uh, take off again. And that really came with uh, Narendra Modi and the BJP, the more right-leaning party that thought in a bit more, uh, you know, hard power terms about Indian security and the and the two-front situation with Pakistan and China, where interests started to align very well with the United States, particularly after 2000, um, 2011. Uh, but, you know, while we're on the issue of uh, partnerships, I do want to bring up um, Afghanistan, which I think is a particularly interesting one. I mean, here the United States, you know, continues to have a military presence as the Obama administration leaves. 
Um, and I actually saw interesting data today that shows that um, the United States actually bombed Afghanistan more intensively in uh, 2016 than it did in 2015, suggesting that the military role there isn't going to, you know, go anywhere just yet. Um, but I was wondering, Prashant, I mean, what's your sense of, you know, how this administration really managed both, you know, the end of combat operations in Afghanistan in late 2014, but also the evolution of, um, you know, taking the role in Afghanistan from one of a um, of an ongoing military occupation and a military combat mission to one of supporting the Afghan mission and underwriting it as uh, Obama leaves. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, that's a, that's a great question, and I, I'm glad you brought it up because Afghanistan sometimes gets gets neglected uh, in in some of these discussions. Definitely, I, mean, I think the the Obama administration, when it came into office, I mean, a, a sort of if you were to come up with a bumper sticker, it was you know engaging with uh, new partners, but also withdrawing from two wars, one in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And I think the rhetoric uh, and the actions that the Obama administration undertook in the last few years. Um, up till now, even in the campaign and Donald Trump's victory, um, it's left itself vulnerable in terms of how it has uh, withdrawn its presence from there and also shifted its priorities. I think it's been accused of um, doing so rather hastily. Um, I think the advantage that the Obama administration has uh, relative to uh, the Bush administration is that it had a little bit more leeway to reorganize and reinvent its role in Afghanistan relative to what the Bush administration had because during the Bush administration essentially Afghanistan was sort of the forgotten war right when you had the Iraq war there was a problem that arose where Afghanistan uh, got neglected uh, initially um, and I think that you know one of the interesting things to see going forward and there's actually been in my view, not enough discussion about this is where Donald Trump will will take things going from here. Oh yeah. Because essentially, because essentially, what you have right now uh, in Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and Syria um, is the case where we're talking about Asia and this sort of uh, a broad uh, pivot strategy. Um, the broad narrative, if you look at U.S. policy, is that uh, while the U.S. has pivoted to Asia. There has been almost a vacuum being created uh, in the Middle East, and that has partly been pegged, I think somewhat unfairly, but I could see the case being made uh, by the Obama administration's overly quick withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, as well as its uh, real failure to do more in the region. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's a very pertinent question. I mean, where the incoming administration will take policy there. Um, I mean, you're right. I think a lot of this came down to domestic political considerations, just going back to that, you know, bumper sticker campaign rhetoric of being the president to end these two wars, which I think Obama really wanted for himself. I mean, he wanted to end the two wars, close Guantanamo Bay and, uh, you know, look, look where we are these yeah. days. So um, it is um, it is a bit unfortunate, but I think it'll be one of the issues to watch closely. Um, you know, I don't want to move on too fast. I mean, are there, you know, um, other partnerships that you want to uh, say a bit on? I mean, another one, you know, I mean, obviously this is are lower on the radar than the three we just discussed. But, you know, not, like another good example is Laos. I mean, just this past year, we saw a ton of advancement on that front. But, you know, it also shows that this administration really doesn't see, you know, any country as too small to not merit serious attention and being kind of drawn into the normative network the United States is trying to underwrite in the Asia Pacific. Um, any Absolutely. any final thoughts before we move on? Absolutely. No, I, I think that's an important point to be made. Uh, this administration has really cast its net wide in terms of the array of partners. Um, and that's because a lot of the top level officials have been really willing to been willing to invest uh, the time as well as fly the miles in terms of 
engaging in these high-level meetings. Um, and I think that that's quite rare and quite new for U.S. administrations. I mean, if you look at the Bush administration, previously the Clinton administration, there, there was a much more selective a group of countries of which it engaged. Uh, even the Clinton administration, for example, there was a similar belief in the liberal uh, international order, but uh, the the net the Obama administration has cast with respect to these partnerships has really been quite wide. One of the other things um, I think that, that uh, you and I have both written about, you mentioned trilateral partnerships and networking. I mean, that's certainly been important, whether you look at you know, older ones like U.S., Japan, are okay, or newer ones like, you know, U.S., uh, Japan, India, U.S., Japan, Australia. Um, but I also think, you know, the, the, the quadrilateral is something that um, I think not only garnered a lot of attention and some controversy, but it's something that will be interesting to watch uh, going forward uh, because um, this is an administration, um, as we've both been saying, that has been really committed to this idea of networking, casting the net wide, multilateral relationships and and broad configurations. Now, I'm I'm not so sure whether uh, a a subsequent administration would be devoted to multilateral uh, networks and organizations like ASEAN, but one of the things that we could see is greater investment in some of these smaller, minilateral uh, arrangements, whether it's, you know, six-party talks or whether it's the quadrilateral, where Mm-hmm. They're perceived to be a more selective group of countries that are like-minded and capable to do things that the United States wants to do. Yeah, so you actually just outlined the thesis of the article I wrote for the January issue of The Diplomat magazine on the quadrilateral. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, I make a very similar argument that if we are about to see a withdrawal under the Trump administration, I think a lot of the groundwork that has been laid over the past eight years presents an interesting opportunity, particularly with Turnbull, Modi, and Abe in office, to really see uh, you know, the old idea of the Quad, which was really a Japanese initiative, start to take off uh, with or without the United States. I mean, even if the United States just kind of toes along right. with even, you know, low level State Department representation, I think, uh, you know, there's real potential. We'll see where that goes. Um, a lot of that will depend on obviously how um, things turn out in the first year of the Trump presidency. Uh, but, you know, you just brought up uh, multilateralism, which is the next item on the agenda, which I want to move on to. And, you know, this administration, I think, early on showed a commitment to multilateralism in the Asia Pacific. I mean, signing on to the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, joining the East Asia Summit. And since then, we've only seen that grow. And, uh, you know, just by the nature of multilateralism itself, it really um, meshes very well with this idea of growing networks and growing uh, multifarious partnerships with countries that are both allies, partners and emerging partners. Uh, so, Prashant, you know, um, obviously, a lot of this multilateralism in Asia takes place in the context of ASEAN and Southeast Asia, which is the, in some ways the heart of Asia um, when it comes to um, pulling all of these various economic, security, and regional groupings together. So what's your sense of how the United States has managed that under the Obama administration? Yeah, I think, I think as you alluded to, um, this has been an area of big success for the Obama administration. Um, I think it's fair to say it's the first administration that has fully embraced uh, ASEAN uh, as a regional grouping. Uh, and devoted significant energy to engaging with it. Um, Obama institutionalized an annual U.S. ASEAN leaders meeting. They, they stationed an ambassador out in Jakarta. They signed a strategic partnership with, with ASEAN as a grouping and held a, a summit here, obviously, in, in, uh, in Sunnylands that was uh, one of the signature initiatives of the Obama administration. You know, I, I think uh, as the administration uh, prepares to leave office, though, 
there are obviously questions still raised by naysayers about the utility um, of this engagement with multilateral forums for U.S. interests. I mean, if you, and uh, the critique is, is you know, is, is simplistic but very easy to outline, which is, you know, where have we gotten on the South China Sea, for example, if, you know, we're engaging ASEAN, but the Cambodians um, and other countries, sometimes Laos, uh, try to frustrate whatever we're doing. I mean, what's the point of engaging ASEAN? And I think at that point, is where you see a divergence between folks who feel like the United States needs to engage a more narrow group of capable countries that already agree with it, and uh, some other folks who think that you need to support these broader versions of a liberal international order, because not only because it's crucial to addressing broader challenges, whether it's you know peacekeeping or climate change and terrorism, but also, I mean, if the United States is not investing in ASEAN centrality, then what uh, you know, sort of legitimacy does it have to sort of talk about uh, China and how it's, it is undermining ASEAN centrality, right? So I think that's been sort of uh, the debate that's been going on. I think, you know, one of the interesting things we've seen, and you've written about this too, with multilateral organizations that some have blamed the Obama administration for is, um, and I think somewhat unfairly, is uh, the role for which emerging powers have to play amid uh, changing uh, roles with respect to foundational institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Um, you know, there, there's been all, uh, conversations, and the Obama administration actually tried to get this going in terms of getting the Chinese to play more of a role in the IMF and World Bank and some of these Bretton Woods institutions, but that was frustrated by Congress. Right. And I think th this is a plays into a larger debate about, you know, the, the sort of the rise of China and how the United States and China are trying to realign themselves. And, you know, the United States needs to provide China with some some more space to rise um, and a, a sort of foundational uh, role in these organizations if it wants it to play a role of a responsible stakeholder. But, you know, the Chinese would counter by saying that, hey, I mean, if, if you guys are not going to let us and your U.S. Congress is not going to let us play this role, then you can't blame us for going and creating these new organizations like the Asian Institutional Investment mm -hmm. Bank and these other mm -hmm. uh, organizations. So I think that's where some of the limitations are, but I wouldn't necessarily blame that on the administration. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you know, maybe we're being a little soft in the administration when it comes to uh, some of the facts. I mean, at least that's what I think uh, with the with the AIIB and similar issues. I mean, with the AIIB, I mean, you had a lot of, I mean, especially within the Treasury Department. I mean, Jack Liu was kind of the locus, um, at least his office was the locus of the criticisms of the bank as being insufficiently um, focused on high standards for governance and the environment. Um, at least that was the rhetoric that was coming out of the White House. Um, obviously, the subtext that a lot of commentators read into, and here I actually don't include myself among these commentators, was, you know, oh, AIIB is just a front for China right. to have countries sign on to uh, you know, essentially finance one belt, one road, um, you know, filling its coffers with the money of external countries. Um, but obviously, I mean, you know, I think the view today, I mean, apart well, with the exception of some uh, China hawks is uh, that, you know, the AIB play was a bit of a mistake by the administration. It was one of the idea, uh, one of the areas where it could have encouraged China to play an encouraging, um, encouraging role in getting in on the ground floor. I mean, obviously, it was embarrassing to the United States when you saw, you know, leaked reports that the administration had requested the UK and other allies to not join on, and they went ahead anyways. Um, obviously, the significant US ally that didn't sign on was Japan. Um, 
But I think the uh, the legacy of the AIB does show some hesitance um, on the part of this administration to, um, you know, with regard to China's intentions with some of these organizations. And I don't think the chapter, you know, I don't think we can close the book on that. Um, I mean, ultimately, the administration might end up being proved right. I mean, my current evaluation of the AIB, having written on it quite a bit and looked at the early projects that it's financed in uh, places like Central Asia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, is that it's a fairly anodyne analog to the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank. It's a cooperative with these organizations, cooperating with the European groups as well, um, in addition to the UK's foreign aid office. Um, and so far, you know, we haven't really seen egregious examples of China throwing standards to the wind and moving forward. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of the areas where I'd maybe be a little bit more critical of this administration um, when it came to uh, decision making and just thinking about the role that China can play and how uh, Washington can encourage it to play a more constructive role. Um, but, uh, you know, just um, on the front of, you know, while we're talking about multilateralism, I do want to bring up human rights. Um, I guess there's not a, another place to really put this issue, uh, but it's something that we don't really talk about a lot on this podcast. And I guess, uh, you know, by the same token, it's not something in my view that this administration has really given a lot of attention to. Um, and I think, you know, the reasons for that might be obvious. I mean, human rights is something that a lot of countries just don't like when Washington lectures them, um, and especially if you're trying to build a network uh, across the Asia Pacific and you're talking to countries that admittedly don't have the best record on issues that the United States cares about or professes to care about ideologically. Sometimes those things do get tossed to the wind a little. But what's your sense, uh, um, sense here? I think we have seen some examples of that, but uh, broadly I'd say it wasn't a huge theme for the Obama administration, especially in the final term. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if you were to say that uh, the, the sort of AIIB case is an example where the administration may have initially uh, reacted uh, a little bit too, uh, by being a little bit too paranoid um, with respect to the media reporting that came out, but then later sort of shifted it. And in fact, now you're seeing a lot of cooperation between the AIIB already and the World Bank and, and ADB and some of these projects. I think with respect to human rights and democracy, it, it, it's almost the opposite. It, very clearly early on, the Obama administration made it very clear that um, they were go they were interested in pursuing new opportunities with countries and that they were willing to downplay some of these issues and speak about them a lot more quietly than previous administrations in order to get uh, the additional cooperation that they desired. Um, I think part of this was due to the fact that, and you know, you, you could argue whether there was a more cynical view or a more strategic view, but th there was a sense that under the Bush administration, the democracy agenda was pushed too far mm -hmm. um, and that the administration needed to correct for that. But at the same time, I, I do think you know, that this played into what the administration's narrative was, which, which was that the United States should not be afraid of talking to uh, countries that are not necessarily democracies yet. Um, or even semi-democracies or autocracies, because this is a long game. Um, and the United States, by not engaging, and the perfect example here is Myanmar, uh, by not engaging countries like uh, Myanmar, Cuba is another example, um, the United States is losing out because China and other countries are engaging them. Mm -hmm. And by engaging these countries, the United States actually can have more leverage to actually influence these countries. Now, the problem is uh, that, you know, I'll take Myanmar as an example. Once the administration has pursued the engagement, uh, it, it has proven unwilling to use that leverage that it said that it you know, would acquire to then advance these democracy and human rights issues. And, and that's the critical challenge that I think it has not addressed, which is, you know, you, you invest in these countries and you engage with them. 
But then once it's clear that there are these human rights and democracy challenges and uh, they are not addressing them to the extent that uh, the United States and other actors um, and civil rights communities and human rights organizations want, what do you do then? Um, because the Obama administration's response has simply been, well, we're just going to keep engaging and we're, we hope that eventually these, these guys are going to uh, adapt and change and that you know this is a process that takes decades to develop. But, you know, this goes back to the foundational question for U.S. foreign policy, which is that unlike U.S. governments, unlike other governments, the U.S. government has always said that it doesn't just engage with other governments around the world. It also engages with the peoples of the world, right? Um, and in Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, you have cases where uh, countries and leaderships um, and political parties sometimes are not necessarily aligned with the people's needs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if you don't resolve that question, uh, that's a long-term issue for U.S. foreign policy because, you know, as you and I both know, I mean, there are these young emerging middle classes in these countries and they are uh, looking for change in terms of their leaderships. And if the United States is not going to be on the right side of history long-term, that's going to be an issue that needs to be resolved sooner or later. Right, right. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, another, you know, other episodes to criticize, such as the perceived uh, tampering with uh, where countries rank when it comes to human trafficking reports and things like that, uh, you know, religious freedom. Um, and obviously, you know, th those criticisms have been made uh, very publicly out there. But like you said, I think this administration does have a different understanding of the pace at which history progresses, in a sense. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll just bring up here very quickly um, is, uh, you know, TPP, I think, is an interesting example here. I mean, a lot of the uh, rhetoric that the administration yep. used to defend TPP was actually based around the idea that, you know, if we get these countries, uh, particularly some of the, you know, less developed countries that were signing on to TPP, a uh, notable example here being Vietnam, it was that, you know, labor standards will be improved, um, livelihoods will be improved. Uh, this is generally, you know, improving the plight of workers in these countries and making things better for them. Uh, so that was, again, an interesting aspect. And in a sense, you know, I think this administration saw um, continuing progress in globalization, interconnectedness and free trade as uh, certain factors that would actually underwrite the uh, development of human rights and help make these countries a little bit more, uh, you know, like the United States itself, if not, um, you know, um, fully democratic in some sense, or, you know, fully uh, paragons of human rights. Uh, so there is that interesting aspect there as well. Um, all right, Prashant, so I think um, we've talked a lot about, you know, some of the uh, good things that, the, that this administration has managed to do, and now it's to talk about the times to talk about some of the more difficult challenges. Um, and, you know, we saved the adversaries for last because I think uh, this is one of the areas where there's considerable uh, disagreement about both how this administration has done, um, what it should have done, um, and how the things that it did actually ended up panning out. Um, and obviously the big one here is China, um, the United States' only great power competitor. Um, well, maybe not only if you're Vladimir Putin, but uh, certainly in the Asia Pacific and uh, certainly the state that has been challenging the idea of the United States' place as a Pacific power um, and more broadly as the Pacific hegemon. Um, so a lot has happened here in the past eight years, and we're probably not going to be able to discuss this in the depth that it deserves um, but, you know, speaking very broadly, um, I would love to get your sense of, 
you know, how this administration managed this relationship with China. I mean, you know, some doves might say that it's a little unfair to lump China exclusively in the category of adversaries since there has been quite a range of successes as well. I mean, the big one people point to is the climate change accord, um, expanding trade with China, um, a range of bilateral diplomatic cooperation at both the global and regional level. But obviously the challenges here are quite stark. Um, And you look at things like the rate at which the Chinese Navy is modernizing its missions in the region, China's growing irredentism in the South China Sea. Um, and, there, you know, there's plenty of challenges to talk about here. So um, what's your, you know, short spiel on how uh, this administration managed the relationship with China? You know, I think, you know, managing China for the United States has always been a question of a mix of balancing and engagement. And I think it's fair to say the administration invested a little bit too much on the engagement side and not nearly enough on the balancing side. Um, this in my view, at least if you look at the initial stages of the administration, this was intentional. Um, There was a calculation by administration officials that uh, China was critical to some of their major priorities, like climate change, North Korea, Iran. So these needed to be weighed against the challenges that Beijing presented. And, you know, to the extent, and as as I mentioned earlier, this is an administration that very much prioritized new opportunities. Um, And so I think China fell into that category. And I think as a result, you have seen the Obama administration underreact to some degree on issues like uh, the South China Sea. Uh, Russia is a more extreme example, I would say. And briefly, you know, you saw the uh, President Obama himself criticize Russia as a, you know, a regional power and demean uh, Vladimir Putin, saying that Russia is on long-term decline. But really, the issue here is not Russia's long-term future. I mean, we're not, it's not an academic argument, right? I mean, even if Russia is in long-term decline, there's a lot of short-term damage that Russia can do to U.S. interests. And I think that has been a boat that the administration uh, has missed. I think President Obama has been correct on the academic argument. But in terms of policy, um, it, it's uh, too much of an underestimation of the threat that Russia could pose to U.S. interests. Yeah. And, you know, I'd say this administration, in a sense, misjudged the magnitude of change that was coming with the transition from Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. I mean, uh, when you put you know Chinese yeah. leaders side by side and you compare them, I think this transition is probably the most stark difference, just in absolute value terms, since uh, you know Mao to Deng Xiaoping, which went the other way in terms of uh, instability. Uh, so that was interesting. I mean, I think she more so than anyone could have um, maybe predicted. Well, depends. I mean, some people were pretty upfront early on about the fact that she would be a more assertive Chinese leader in many ways. Uh, you know, I think she just presented a, a range of challenges and really caught this administration off guard on a on a range of fronts. And I think the Chinese um, understood what you pointed out about this administration that it understood that it needed China for certain items on the U.S. agenda that were way higher up than you know. Issues like freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, which the administration professes to care about and has, you know, taken action on. But obviously, you know, as we've seen from the reports talking about the tensions between Pacific Command and the White House, obviously there are limits to the extent to which um, Obama, at least, was willing to authorize uh, U.S. action there. Um, But, you know, I mean, when it comes to China, uh, another issue that I think we should talk about is how the administration, you know, began taking action on issues like cyber hacking uh, in 2014 with the indictment of five PLA officials and uh, that continuing on. Obviously, the cyber front has been, on, uh, you know, in the headlines recently for a um, wide range of reasons, um, not focusing primarily on China. But there was a while uh, for which, you know, China was seen as 
the primary threat. And this administration, you know, if you look at what they've been saying on trade, I mean, Michael Froman has been going around making the point that, you know, China's unfair trade practices, its treatment of U.S. technology firms has really been unacceptable. The latest U.S. national trade estimate points out a range of areas where, uh, you know, this administration has felt that China has been unfair. Uh, you know, Obama actually enacted a 450% steel tariff on China after the glut came to be known and China was perceived as dumping steel overseas. Uh, so, you know, Donald Trump obviously gets a lot of flack for talking about tariffs, but here's another area where the administration, you know, took action against China um, as well. But obviously, I think you're, I think you're right on the fundamental idea, though, that maybe, um, you know, when the moment was presented for the United States to be hard and prevent short-term erosion of U.S. interests, the administration was reluctant to act in some ways. Um, and I think maybe, you know, there was a sense that, uh, you know, this was a longer game. There would be another president to come after Obama that would deal with Xi Jinping. So um, maybe, you know, see where things go and don't, um, you know, escalate too quickly. But obviously now with Donald Trump coming in and U.S.-China ties, I think, set pretty clearly on a on downward trajectory, um, that probably wasn't the best calculation. Uh, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, the Obama administration, and you summarize it really well, with respect to all these challenges, including the Asia legacy and the pivot, I think it perceived that there would be future administrations, and, you know, particularly the Clinton administration, that would follow in its footsteps. Um, and it was a long-term agenda. And now Trump's election has really thrown all of this uh, into question. And I think that's an issue not just for the future of U.S. foreign policy. It's an, also an issue for Obama's legacy as he thinks about, you know, writing his uh, book on his legacy. So, Right. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a good place to wrap this discussion up, Prashant. I think, uh, I think we managed to cover all of... Uh you know, all of what we set out on this agenda in under 40 minutes, which is probably not the time this deserves, um, actually almost certainly. But uh, the good news for our listeners, at least, is that there's a lot more on this stuff at the Diplomats website. So I encourage you guys to check that out if you're interested in reading more about these issues. Prashant and I both um, have written on some of these issues as well. Um, but I think we'll uh, leave it there for now, at least with Obama's uh, legacy. But it's certainly a topic we'll be coming back to. Like I said at the beginning of this podcast, I think knowing where things stood on January 20th um, with regard to the U.S. position in Asia will be important. It'll be something we'll come back to to compare what the Trump administration um, is doing. And I think, you know, the odds that we'll see a pretty drastic change, um, even on the level of grand strategy, is is looking is looking more and more likely. Um, but again, you know, it's uh, it's always hard to predict, especially hard to predict the future, as I believe one aphorism goes. So we will uh, come back and uh, talk more about what the Trump administration will do. So uh, thanks a lot for dis uh, for listening, as usual. And uh, thanks, Prashant, for joining me today. Sounds good. Good to be with you. Great. Once again, thanks for listening. And I hope your 2017 is great. And I certainly hope it's great and stable and peaceful and prosperous for the Asia Pacific as well. Uh, if you like this podcast and you want to keep up with Asian geopolitics as we enter the age of Trump, definitely don't forget to subscribe. And if you've been listening for a while, but you haven't given us a rating yet on iTunes, now's the moment. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.